Part eight of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Lycurgus, Part One. Concerning Lycurgus the lawgiver, in general nothing can be said which is not disputed, since indeed there are different accounts of his birth, his travels, his death, and above all, of his work as lawmaker and statesman, and there is least agreement among historians as to the times in which the man lived. Some say that he flourished at the same time with Iphitus, and in concert with him established the Olympic truce. Among these is Aristotle, the philosopher, and he alleges as proof the discus at Olympia on which an inscription preserves the name of Lycurgus. But those who compute the time by the successions of kings at Sparta, like Eratosthenes and Apollodorus, prove that Lycurgus was many years earlier than the first Olympiad, and Timaeus conjectures that there were two Lycurgus at Sparta at different times, and that to one of them the achievements of both were ascribed, owing to his greater fame. He thinks also that the elder of the two lived not far from the times of Homer, and some assert that he actually met Homer face to face. Xenophon also makes an impression of simplicity in the passage where he says that Lycurgus lived in the time of the Heraclidae, for in lineage, of course, the latest of the Spartan kings were also Heraclidae, but Xenophon apparently wishes to use the name Heraclidae of the first and more immediate descendants of Heracles so famous in story. However, although the history of these times is such a maze, I shall try, in presenting my narrative, to follow those authors who are least contradicted, or who have the most notable witnesses for what they have written about the man. For instance, Simonides the poet says that Lycurgus was not the son of Eunomus, but that both Lycurgus and Eunomus were sons of Prytanis, whereas most writers give a different genealogy as follows. Aristodemus begat Procles, Procles begat Soas, Soas begat Euripone, and he begat Prytanis, from whom sprang Eunomus, and from Eunomus Polydectes by a first wife, and Lycurgus, who was a younger son by a second wife, Dionassa, as Diutychidas has written, making Lycurgus sixth from Procles and eleventh from Heracles. Of these ancestors of Lycurgus, Soas was most famous, under whom the Spartans made the Helots their slaves, and acquired by conquest from the Arcadians a large additional tract of land. It is also related of this Soas that when he was besieged by the Clitorians in a rough and waterless place, he agreed to surrender to them the land which he had conquered, if he himself and all his men with him should drink from the adjacent spring. After the oaths to this agreement were taken, he assembled his men, and offered his kingdom to the one who should not drink. No one of them, however, could forbear, 
but all of them drank, whereupon Zoas himself went down last of all to the water, sprinkled his face merely, while the enemy was still at hand to see, and then marched away and retained his territory on the plea that all had not drunk. But although on these grounds he was held in great admiration, his royal line was not named from him, but were called Euripontids from his son, because Euripone appears to have been the first king to relax the excessive absolutism of his sway, seeking favour and popularity with the multitude. But in consequence of such relaxation the people grew bold, and succeeding kings were some of them hated for trying to force their way with the multitude, and some were brought low by their desire for favour or through weakness, so that lawlessness and confusion prevailed at Sparta for a long time. And it was owing to this that the father of Lycurgus, a reigning king, lost his life. For as he was trying to separate some rioters, he was stabbed to death with a butcher's knife, leaving the kingdom to his elder son Polydectes. Polydectes also died soon afterwards, and then, as was generally thought, the kingdom devolved upon Lycurgus. And until his brother's wife was known to be with child, he was king. But as soon as he learned of this, he declared that the kingdom belonged to her offspring, if it should be male, and himself administered the government only as guardian. Now the guardians of fatherless kings are called prodicoi by the Lacedaemonians. Presently, however, the woman made secret overtures to him, proposing to destroy her unborn babe on condition that he would marry her when he was a king of Sparta. And although he detested her character, he did not reject her proposition, but pretended to approve and accept it. He told her, however, that she need not use drugs to produce a miscarriage, thereby injuring her health and endangering her life, for he would see to it himself that as soon as her child was born it should be put out of the way. In this manner he managed to bring the woman to her full time, and when he learned that she was in labour, he sent attendants and watchers for her delivery, with orders, if a girl should be born, to hand it over to the women, but if a boy, to bring it to him, no matter what he was doing. And it came to pass that as he was at supper with the chief magistrates, a male child was born, and his servants brought the little boy to him. He took it in his arms, as we are told, and said to those who were at table with him, A king is born unto you, O men of Sparta. Then he laid it down in the royal seat, and named it Carileus, or People's Joy, because all present were filled with joy, admiring as they did his lofty spirit and his righteousness. And so he was king only eight months in all. But on other accounts also he was revered by his fellow-citizens, and more than those who obeyed him because he was guardian of the king and had royal power in his hands, were those who clave to him for his virtues, and were ready and willing to do his bidding. There was a party, however, which envied him, and sought to impede the growing power of so young a man, especially the kinsmen and friends of the queen-mother, who thought she had been treated with insolence. Her brother, Leonidas, 
actually railed at Lycurgus once quite boldly, assuring him that he knew well that Lycurgus would one day be king, thereby promoting suspicion and paving the way for the accusation, in case anything happened to the king, that he had plotted against his life. Some such talk was set in circulation by the Queen Mother also, in consequence of which Lycurgus was sorely troubled and fearful of what might be in store for him. He therefore determined to avoid suspicion by travelling abroad, and to continue his wanderings until his nephew should come of age and beget a son to succeed him on the throne. With this purpose he set sail, and came first to Crete. Here he studied the various forms of government, and made the acquaintance of their most distinguished men. Of some things he heartily approved, and adopted some of their laws that he might carry them home with him and put them in use. For some things he had only contempt. One of the men regarded there as wise statesman was Thales, whom Lycurgus persuaded, out of favour and friendship, to go on a mission to Sparta. Now Thales passed as a lyric poet, and screened himself behind this art, but in reality he did the work of one of the mightiest lawgivers. For his odes were so many exhortations to obedience and harmony, and their measured rhythms were permeated with ordered tranquillity, so that those who listened to them were insensibly softened in their dispositions, insomuch that they renounced the mutual hatreds which were so rife at that time, and dwelt together in a common pursuit of what was high and noble. Thales, therefore, after a fashion, was a forerunner in Sparta of Lycurgus and his discipline. From Crete, Lycurgus sailed to Asia, with the desire, as we are told, of comparing with the Cretan civilization, which was simple and severe, that of the Ionians, which was extravagant and luxurious, just as a physician compares with healthy bodies those which are unsound and sickly. He could then study the difference in their modes of life and forms of government. There too, as it would appear, he made his first acquaintance with the poems of Homer, which were preserved among the posterity of Creophilus, and when he saw that the political and disciplinary lessons contained in them were worthy of no less serious attention than the incentives to pleasure and license which they supplied, he eagerly copied and compiled them in order to take them home with him. For these epics already had a certain faint reputation among the Greeks, and a few were in possession of certain portions of them, as the poems were carried here and there by chance. But Lycurgus was the very first to make them really known. The Egyptians think that Lycurgus visited them also, and so ardently admired their separation of the military from the other classes of society, that he transferred it to Sparta, and by removing mechanics and artisans from participation in the government, made his civil polity really refined and pure. At any rate, this assertion of the Egyptians is confirmed by some Greek historians. But that Lycurgus visited Libya and Iberia also, and that he wandered over India, 
and had conferences with the gymnosophists, no one has stated, so far as I know, except Aristocrates, the son of Hipparchus, the Spartan. The Lacedaemonians missed Lycurgus sorely, and sent for him many times. They felt that their kings were such in name and station merely, but in everything else were nothing better than their subjects, while in him there was a nature fitted to lead, and a power to make men follow him. However, not even the kings were averse to having him at home, but hoped that in his presence their subjects would treat them with less insolence. Returning then to a people thus disposed, he at once undertook to change the existing order of things, and revolutionize the civil polity. He was convinced that a partial change of the laws would be of no avail whatsoever, but that he must proceed as a physician would with a patient who was debilitated and full of all sorts of diseases. He must reduce and alter the existing temperament by means of drugs and purges, and introduce a new and different regimen. Full of this determination, he first made a journey to Delphi, and after sacrificing to the god and consulting the oracle, he returned with that famous response in which the Pythian priestess addressed him as beloved of the gods, and rather god than man, and said that the god had granted his prayer for good laws, and promised him a constitution which should be the best in the world. Thus encouraged, he tried to bring the chief men of Sparta over to his side, and exhorted them to put their hands to the work with him, explaining his design secretly to his friends at first, then little by little engaging more and uniting them to attempt the task. And when the time for action came, he ordered thirty of the chief men to go armed into the marketplace at break of day, to strike consternation and terror into those of the opposite party. The names of twenty of the most eminent among them have been recorded by Hermippus, but the man who had the largest share in all the undertakings of Lycurgus, and cooperated with him in the enactment of his laws, bore the name of Arthmiadas. When the tumult began, King Carilaeus, fearing that the whole affair was a conspiracy against himself, fled for refuge to the brazen house. But he was soon convinced of his error, and having exacted oaths for his safety from the agitators, left his place of refuge, and even joined them in their enterprise, being of a gentle and yielding disposition, so much so, indeed, that Archelaus, his royal colleague, is said to have remarked to those who were extolling the young king, How can Carilaeus be a good man, when he has no severity even for the bad? Among the many innovations which Lycurgus made, the first and most important was his institution of a senate or council of elders, which, as Plato says, by being blended with the feverish government of the kings, and by having an equal vote with them in matters of the highest importance, brought safety and due moderation into councils of state. For before this the civil polity was veering and unsteady, inclining at one time to follow the kings towards tyranny, and at another to follow the multitude towards democracy. 
but now by making the power of the senate a sort of ballast for the ship of state and putting her on a steady keel it achieved the safest and the most orderly arrangement since the twenty-eight senators always took the side of the kings when it was a question of curbing democracy and on the other hand always strengthened the people to withstand the encroachments of tyranny the number of the senators was fixed at twenty-eight because according to aristotle two of the thirty original associates of lycurgus abandoned the enterprise from lack of courage but spherus says that this was originally the number of those who shared the confidence of lycurgus possibly there is some virtue in this number being made up of seven multiplied by four apart from the fact that being equal to the sum of its own factors it is the next perfect number after six but in my own opinion lycurgus made the senators of just that number in order that the total might be thirty when the two kings were added to the eight and twenty so eager was lycurgus for the establishment of this form of government that he obtained an oracle from delphi about it which they call a retra and this is the way it runs when thou hast built a temple to zeus silenius and athena silenia divided the people into phyli and into obi and established a senate of thirty members including the archagetae then from time to time appelladzine between babica and nation and there introduce and rescind measures but the people must have the deciding voice and the power in these clauses the phyli and the obi refer to divisions and distributions of the people into clans and fratries or brotherhoods by archagetae the kings are designated and apeladzine means to assemble the people with a reference to apollo the pythian god who was the source and author of the polity the babica is now called chimarus and the gnation enus but aristotle says that gnation is a river and babica a bridge between these they held their assemblies having neither halls nor any other kind of building for the purpose for by such things lycurgus thought good counsel was not promoted but rather discouraged since the serious purposes of an assembly were rendered foolish and futile by vain thoughts as they gazed upon statues and paintings or scenic embellishments or extravagantly decorated roofs of council halls when the multitude was thus assembled no one of them was permitted to make a motion but the motion laid before them by the senators and kings could be accepted or rejected by the people Afterwards, however, when the people, by additions and subtractions, perverted and distorted the sense of motions laid before them, kings Polydorus and Theopompus inserted this clause into the retra. But if the people should adopt a distorted motion, the senators and kings shall have power of adjournment. That is, should not ratify the vote, but dismiss outright and dissolve the session on the ground that it was perverting and changing the motion contrary to the best interests of the state 
and they were actually able to persuade the city that the god authorized this addition to the reacher, as Tertius reminds us in these verses. Phoebus Apollo's the mandate was, which they brought from Pytho, voicing the will of the god, nor were his words unfulfilled. Sway in the council, and honours divine belong to the princes, under whose care has been set Sparta's city of charm. Second to them are the elders, and next come the men of the people, duly confirming by vote unperverted decrees. Although Lycurgus thus tempered his civil polity, nevertheless the oligarchical element in it was still unmixed and dominant, and his successors, seeing it swelling and foaming, as Plato says, imposed, as it were, a curb upon it, namely the power of the ephors. It was about a hundred and thirty years after Lycurgus that the first ephors, Elatus and his colleagues, were appointed in the reign of Theopompus. This king, they say, on being reviled by his wife because the royal power, when he handed it over to his sons, would be less than when he received it, said, Nay, but greater in that it will last longer. And in fact, by renouncing excessive claims and freeing itself from jealous hate, royalty at Sparta escaped its perils, so that the Spartan kings did not experience the fate which the Messenians and Argives inflicted upon their kings, who were unwilling to yield at all, or remit their power in favour of the people. And this brings into the clearest light the wisdom and foresight of Lycurgus, when we contrast the factions and misgovernment of the peoples and kings of Messenia and Argos, who were kinsmen and neighbours of the Spartans. They were on an equality with the Spartans in the beginning, and in the allotment of territory were thought to be even better off than they, and yet their prosperity did not last long, but what with the insolent temper of their kings and the unreasonableness of their peoples, their established institutions were confounded, and they made it clear that it was in very truth a divine blessing which the Spartans had enjoyed in the man who framed and tempered their civil polity for them. These events, however, were of later date. A second and very bold political measure of Lycurgus is his redistribution of the land. For there was a dreadful inequality in this regard. The city was heavily burdened with indigent and helpless people, and wealth was wholly concentrated in the hands of a few. Determined, therefore, to banish insolence and envy and crime and luxury, and those yet more deep-seated and afflictive diseases of the state, poverty and wealth, he persuaded his fellow-citizens to make one parcel of all their territory, and divide it up anew, and to live with one another on a basis of entire uniformity and equality in the means of subsistence, seeking preeminence through virtue alone, assured that there was no other difference or inequality between man and man than that which was established by blame for base actions and praise for good ones. Suiting the deed to the word, he distributed the rest of the Laconian land among the Perioeci 
or free provincials in thirty thousand lots, and that which belonged to the city of Sparta in nine thousand lots to as many genuine Spartans. But some say that Lycurgus distributed only six thousand lots among the Spartans, and that three thousand were afterwards added by Polydorus. Others still, that Polydorus added half of the nine thousand to the half distributed by Lycurgus. The lot of each was large enough to produce annually seventy bushels of barley for a man and twelve for his wife, with a proportionate amount of wine and oil. Lycurgus thought that a lot of this size would be sufficient for them, since they needed sustenance enough to promote vigour and health of body, and nothing else. And it is said that on returning from a journey some time afterwards, as he traversed the land just after the harvest, and saw the heaps of grain standing parallel and equal to one another, he smiled and said to them that were by, All Laconia looks like a family estate newly divided among many brothers. Next he undertook to divide up their movable property also, in order that every vestige of unevenness and inequality might be removed, and when he saw that they could not bear to have it taken from them directly, he took another course, and overcame their avarice by political devices. In the first place, he withdrew all gold and silver money from currency, and ordained the use of iron money only. Then to a great weight and mass of this he gave a trifling value, so that ten miners' worth, required a large storeroom in the house and a yoke of cattle to transport it. When this money obtained currency, many sorts of iniquity went into exile from Lacedaemon. For who would steal, or receive as a bribe, or rob, or plunder that which could neither be concealed, nor possessed with satisfaction, nay, nor even cut to pieces with any profit? For vinegar was used, as we are told, to quench the red-hot iron, robbing it of its temper, and making it worthless for any other purpose, when once it had become brittle and hard to work. In the next place he banished the unnecessary and superfluous arts, and even without such banishment most of them would have departed with the old coinage, since there was no sale for their products. For the iron money could not be carried into the rest of Greece, nor had it any value there, but was rather held in ridicule. It was not possible, therefore, to buy any foreign wares or bric-a-brac, no merchant seamen brought freight into their harbours, no rhetoric teacher set foot on Laconian soil, no vagabond soothsayer, no keeper of harlots, no gold or silversmith, since there was no money there. But luxury, thus gradually deprived of that which stimulated and supported it, died away of itself, and men of large possessions had no advantage over the poor, because their wealth found no public outlet, but had to be stored up at home in idleness. In this way it came about that such common and necessary utensils as bedsteads, chairs, and tables were most excellently made among them, and the Laconian cothone or drinking-cup, was in very high repute for usefulness among soldiers in active service, as Critias tells us. 
for its colour concealed the disagreeable appearance of the water which they were often compelled to drink, and its curving lips caught the muddy sediment and held it inside, so that only the purer part reached the mouth of the drinker. For all this they had to thank their lawgiver, since their artisans were now freed from useless tasks, and displayed the beauty of their workmanship in objects of constant and necessary use. With a view to attack luxuries still more, and remove the thirst for wealth, he introduced his third and most exquisite political device, namely the institution of common messes, so that they might eat with one another in companies of common and specified foods, and not take their meals at home, reclining on costly couches at costly tables, delivering themselves into the hands of servants and cooks, to be fattened in the dark, like voracious animals, and ruining not only their characters but also their bodies, by surrendering them to every desire and all sorts of surfeit, which call for long sleeps, hot baths, abundant rest, and, as it were, daily nursing and tending. This was surely a great achievement, but it was a still greater one to make wealth an object of no desire, as Theophrastus says, and even unwealth by this community of meals and simplicity of diet. For the rich man could neither use nor enjoy, nor even see or display his abundant means, when he went to the same meal as the poor man, so that it was in Sparta alone of all the cities under the sun that men could have that far-famed sight, a Plutus blind, and lying as lifeless and motionless as a picture. For the rich could not even dine beforehand at home, and then go to the common mess with full stomachs, but the rest kept careful watch of him who did not eat and drink with them, and reviled him as a weakling, and one too effeminate for the common diet. It was due, therefore, to this last political device above all, that the wealthy citizens were incensed against Lycurgus, and banding together against him, denounced him publicly with angry shouts and cries. Finally, many pelted him with stones, so that he ran from the market-place. He succeeded in reaching sanctuary before the rest laid hands on him, but one young man, Alcander, otherwise no mean nature, but hasty and passionate, pressed hard upon him, and as he turned about, smote him with his staff and put out one of his eyes. Lycurgus, however, was far from yielding in consequence of this calamity, but confronted his countrymen, and showed them his face besmeared with blood and his eye destroyed. Whereupon they were so filled with shame and sorrow at the sight, that they placed Alcander in his hands, and conducted him to his house with sympathetic indignation. Lycurgus commended them for their conduct, and dismissed them, but took Alcander into the house with him, where he did the youth no harm by word or deed, but after sending away his customary servants and attendants, ordered him to minister to his wants. The youth, who was of a noble disposition, did as he was commanded, without any words, and abiding thus with Lycurgus, and sharing his daily life, 
he came to know the gentleness of the man, the calmness of his spirit, the rigid simplicity of his habits, and his unwearied industry. He thus became a devoted follower of Lycurgus, and used to tell his intimates and friends that the man was not harsh nor self-willed as he had supposed, but the mildest and gentlest of them all. Such then was the chastisement of this young man, and such the penalty laid upon him, namely to become, instead of a wild and impetuous youth, a most decorous and discreet man. Lycurgus, moreover, in memory of his misfortune, built a temple to Athena Optilitis, so called from Optilus, which is the local Doric word for I. Some writers, however, of whom one is Dioscorides, who wrote a treatise on the Spartan civil polity, say that although Lycurgus was struck in the eye, his eye was not blinded, but he built the temple to the goddess as a thank-offering for its healing. Be that as it may, the Spartan practice of carrying staves into their assemblies was abandoned after this unfortunate accident. End of Lycurgus, Part 1 Recording by Graham Redmond